Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we open your scriptures and read your holy word, we pray that you would speak to us. Soften our hearts that we might hear your voice. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, our scripture today is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through, 20, 14 through 19. Not 21. 14 through 19. So if you're able, let's honor God's word and stand and read uh, together this scripture. Hear God's holy word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. You may be seated. How many of you play basketball? Or how many of you did play basketball? A few more hands came up. Good. I did too. This is one of my favorite games. Um, this is a friend of mine, this ball. Um, and you know if you've played basketball that in order to be a good basketball player, you have to do a lot of skills and drills. And those start in elementary school and those same skills and drills carry you all the way through the highest level that you might achieve. There are things like dribbling and passing and footwork and fitness. And of course, we practice shooting. And there's one specific drill called the free throw. Do you know about the free throw? It's that line that's 15 feet away from the backboard. And when an athlete is fouled, they get a chance to make a free throw. Nobody's guarding them. And so basketball players will practice this free throw over and over and over again. In fact, at the beginning of practice, we practice free throws. In the middle of practice, we practice free throws. And at the end of practice, you often hear a coach say, we're running lines until we can make five or ten in a row. If you've been through one of those practices, you know that practice ends really quickly if you've got a good shooter shooting. Practice goes on awfully long and it's painful if we can't make those five free throws in a row. Basketball players will spend time in a quiet gym by themselves practicing in off hours. They'll also be in a gym where they turn up the music as loud as possible to emulate the crowd noise. They build muscle memory so that in any situation, they can hit a free throw. Well, free throws are an example of a practice that a basketball player develops in order to become a better player. Last week, Pastor George began our sermon series called Vital Signs, and he talked about what are the vital signs um, of an active, healthy member at UPC. 
How can we tell if we're healthy? And during this series, we'll look at five important areas which can serve both as commitments to Jesus and commitments that we might make to one another. These commitments will help us foster and grow into healthy Christians so that we can have a healthy, active faith life here at UPC. Last week, we talked about worship, and I can tell that you were listening because you're here. So good job. If you missed last week's sermon, you can find it on YouTube, but it was a great reminder that it's really important that we gather together in worship. There's something that happens when we gather together as a, as a church family. And so last week we talked about worship. Today we're going to talk about formation. What practices might help us form our lives and why is our spiritual formation important? to the church body. The scripture that we just read is one of my favorites, and in fact, we used it when we baptized our oldest son. Like the Apostle Paul, we prayed that our infant would, along with his church family, know the expanse of God's love in his life. We prayed that he would be formed into a healthy disciple of Jesus. And even then, we knew it would be a combination of his effort, the forces of our community together, and most importantly, we knew that the love of Jesus would be pursuing him. The passage that we just read is the second of two intercessory prayers that Paul preaches on behalf of the Ephesians. And scholars believe that this letter was a circular letter, that it was not just intended for the church of Ephesus, but that it was a letter that would travel to churches all throughout the area. This letter was meant to encourage young churches in their faith. And so as we read this text and hear this prayer, we know it's not just a prayer for the church in Ephesus, but one that Paul prays for all Christians, and we ourselves are included in that prayer. In his book, Paul for Everyone, Tom Wright wrote this. He says, that's what Paul's prayer here is all about. Essentially, it's a prayer that the young Christians may discover the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It means knowing God as the all-loving, all-powerful Father. It means putting down roots into that love or changing the picture, having that love as the rock-solid foundation for every aspect of one's life. It means having that love tune into a well-directed and effective energy in one's personal life. And it means the deep and powerful knowing and loving into which the Christ is invited to enter. Paul wrote these words while he was in prison in Rome. And by this point in Paul's life, we know that he had been through several imprisonments already. He had endured intense persecution. He had survived a shipwreck. He'd had thousands of conversations and he had traveled hundreds of miles. He writes from the perspective of one who has been through the battle. He writes from the voice of wisdom and experience, not unlike a parent's prayer for their child. Paul prays for this church and all of us 
that they, that we, we might root ourselves in the love of Jesus. Why does Paul pray this? Why does he pray this for the church? I think he knows that the church will be under pressure and it will be attacked. Christians will be tested. Christians will be tried. Life will hit hard. Well, we know that that was true not only for the early church, but it's true for us today. It's true for the church around the world. Paul prays that God's spirit would so strengthen the believer that churches and individuals might begin to understand the enormity and abundance of God's love. To the church in Philippi, he penned this verse that some of you have seen many athletes use. And maybe, maybe you find it a favorite verse of yours. It's one of my favorites. Philippians 4.13. We often see this written this way, um, especially on, on Sundays and football games. You might see it on somebody's eye black on their, on their uh, cheek. Um, you see this verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Have you seen that? This verse is often misunderstood, I think, in that arena, um, with the emphasis being on I can do all things. I think some athletes think that perhaps they have superpower to do whatever they want, to achieve whatever they want. Rather, I think this verse might likely means God can do anything through me that he wants. He'll give me the strength for the circumstances or situations that he puts me in. His will, not mine. Paul's experience has taught him that the love of Jesus has been the fuel for his journey. The love of Jesus has been the encouragement when the prison cell was dark, dank, and the door locked tight. The love of Jesus proved to be the strength and fortitude when the path wasn't clear. Paul's own testimony that Jesus Christ can turn a life around, that Jesus Christ can change everything, kept him in the game. His transformation was so amazing, it changed the entire course of his life. And so Paul's words to us, Paul's prayer for us is real and from his heart. He knows what it means to anchor in God's love. As we think about the practices which will strengthen our faith, we often make commitments. I know I have, and sometimes they feel a little bit like a New Year's resolution, where I think, oh, I'm inspired to do this for God, or I'm inspired to read my Bible this many times or hours in a day. I'm inspired to pray more or fast more. I think you know what I mean. You might have made a commitment like that. And if you're like me, those commitments start out in earnest and then over time they begin to fall off the page. And then what happens, I feel guilty. I've disappointed God. And I enter into a cycle of not trusting my goals. I won't follow through. They'll only disappoint me and they'll disappoint God. But before we even talk about action steps, I want to recognize a first principle that has nothing to do with our decisions, nothing to do with our goals, our lists. And for me, realizing this has been a game changer. This first principle doesn't disappoint or cause guilt. The first step has already been taken for us. God has acted first. 
He has initiated. He has taken the first step toward a relationship with you and me. And it wasn't just once. He initiates again and again and again. When I realize this, my motivation regarding my formation changes. I read the other day a prayer from Danish philosopher and theologian Søren Kierkegaard, and I want to share it with you. Listen to his prayer. You have loved us first, O God. Alas, we speak of it in terms of history as if you loved us first but a single time rather than without ceasing. But you have loved us first many times and every day and our whole lives through. When we wake up in the morning and turn our soul to you, you are there first. You have loved us first. If I rise at dawn and at the same second turn my soul toward you in prayer, you are there ahead of me. You have loved me first. And when I withdraw from the distractions of the day and turn my shoulder toward you, you are there first and thus forever. When I realize that God has acted, spoken, and loved me first, that God is loving me first again and again and again, my response to him is so different. It's so freeing. I don't have to try to catch his attention. I don't have to build a list or a resume of Christian accomplishments to, to prove myself to him. I don't have to prove anything. His love is different. He's calling you and me by name, just as he called Paul by name when Paul was on his way to hunt Christians. Paul, the chief among sinners, was being summoned by name by Jesus Christ. God's love finds us wherever we are in whatever mess we're in. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. He does not wait for us to be perfect or even ready. He is calling us. My hope today as we spend a little time together is that we can identify two or three practices that we might engage in. They'll be different for each of us. Things that we might engage in to help deepen our relationship with Jesus. So I want you to take out a piece of paper or your phone just so you can jot down a few words in the next few minutes. And I want to give you number one. You're going to fill in numbers two and three and four on your own. But number one is this. I want you to write this down. God loves, and then write your name. I want you to remember that God has made the first move. God loves, and then write your name. Paul prays that we might plant and root ourselves in, in this love, this love that takes the first step. And once we know that, how might we respond? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your next step might be to turn toward him, to turn toward and accept his love for you. You can do that today. Well, there's a little Mexican restaurant in our neighborhood. And, and last spring, uh, Don and I wanted to go out to dinner, and it was a rainy night, um, a rainy Seattle night. 
And so I looked on Yelp because we had driven by a few times, hadn't gone in, and I looked on Yelp and I read decent reviews. And most importantly, the restaurant was open. And, and so we went. Pretty quickly as we walked into this restaurant, uh, the atmosphere was such that it was warm and cozy and, and decorated well. And suddenly we weren't in rainy Seattle anymore. No, we were somewhere south of the border and it was fantastic. Just the ambiance. And then the food came. And we both were completely blown away by what we ate. It was delicious. Each of us had picked what we thought were, you know, the best dish. And it was wonderful. Well, when this happens to me, um, I go home and I get a little geeky. I get back on the internet and I want to learn more and more and more about the place I just ate. I want to know the story. I want to know the recipes. Most importantly, I want to know the chef. Who is behind this food? You see, in a similar way, I believe our formation as Christians takes off when we experience the love and presence of Jesus. We're now motivated in new ways to get to know him. We're motivated to understand who he is and pursue a relationship with him. I've mentioned to you before that I've been in a couple cohorts of Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It's a, a program uh, written by Pete and Jerry Scazzaro out of New York City. Pete was a pastor there. And they teach a foundational principle of a slowed down spirituality. So I'm finding ways to intentionally enter into the presence of Jesus through silence and stillness listening for his voice, calling my name. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46.10. In the practice of silence, there's no agenda. I just show up. God's waiting for me. And I listen. I experience his presence. Pete Scazzaro says, so often we think we are waiting for God when the truth is he's waiting for us. In silence, I attune my ears to the voice of God, and then, then I am ready to open his word. Better than the internet, better than Google or Yelp, is a resource which is alive and fresh. God re reveals himself through his word, the Bible. I read my Bible now, God's words to me and for me, not as an obligation, but as an opportunity. An opportunity to get to know the one who first loved me. Silence has prepared me to listen for God's voice. And now God's words enter my soul. Something, sometimes those words are, are encouraging and hopeful. And sometimes they're confronting and instructive. I know that we as Christians have a temptation. Uh, we like to read what everybody else writes, don't we? We like to read what others write and think about Jesus. Kind of like reading that Yelp review without going to the restaurant. There's a temptation for us to fill our bookshelves with commentaries or the newest fresh take. I challenge us today to begin with the source document. This is the text in which God speaks for himself. 
And as we read his word to us, we find a reoccurring theme. God loves his people. God pursues those who have turned their back on him. God runs toward us. God joins humanity in Jesus and experiences life with human eyes. He understands us. Jesus sacrifices himself for us. It's all in there, in this book. It's an opportunity, not an obligation. Well, I said that the scripture today was for the baptism of our first son. This next scripture is the, bapti- or the scripture that we used for the baptism of our second son. Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Let's tuck God's word into our hearts. That's one of the things that I'm writing down on my list today. I'm, I want to practice m- memorizing his words to me. Another practice that we might engage in is within our community life. We might join with others to serve together. In community, we know that iron sharpens iron. We see Jesus at work in someone else's life, and, and we're encouraged. I want you to come back next week as Pastor George talks more about community as a vital sign. So how's your list coming? What practices are transforming you as you follow Jesus Christ? Well, I wrote down practicing silence and stillness and memorizing scripture. What about you? What are you writing down? I began today with the idea of a free throw. The hours spent shooting them as an example of a practice or a skill that makes a basketball player a better player. In fact, did you know that last year, one of our very own, Tom Story, shot his one millionth free throw? That's incredible. I don't think I've made that many, I promise. He, he did that on his 82nd birthday. So if you want a goal, that would be something to strive for, I guess. College basketball practice started last week. Conveniently, as the baseball season ended, basketball started, uh, at least for me and my interests. I follow the University of Utah women's basketball program. You see, my good friend Lynn Roberts is the head coach there. And I know Lynn from, I've known her over 20 years. Um, We met at Seattle Pacific, and she was a basketball player and and then a coach there. And I was involved um, leading a Bible study for the women's team and cheering on the uh, women's program at any turn. Lynn's now the head coach at University of Utah. In fact, when Lynn lived in Seattle, we used to worship here at UPC and sat kind of right back over there. Uh, so this is a familiar uh, place for her. Well, the Utes are hot. They are ranked fifth in the preseason polls. And I want to warn you that in February, when they come up to play the Huskies, I might be wearing red. Please don't get mad. I've been confronted before um, when they've played up here and I'm cheering on my friends. So uh, in my heart, I'm, I'm rooting for the Huskies, but I have, to, I have to show that I'm cheering for the Utes. 
Last month, they advanced in the postseason to the Sweet 16 and played against Louisiana State University on national television. It was a huge game, a huge opportunity. And the game itself was extremely close. The lead changed hands a couple different times, and as the clock went towards zero, it got more and more tense and exciting, and there were 4.7 seconds left on the clock. The score was LSU 65, Utah 64. Guess what happened? Jenna Johnson got fouled, and so she went to the free throw line to, to shoot two. Jenna Johnson's a 75% free throw shooter, and Utah fans were so excited. She had the opportunity to make two baskets. They would take the lead, and the clock would run out. That's the story we were rooting for. Well, Jenna approached the line and did what she always does. She did her routine. She took a deep breath. And that's what happened. The ball did not hit anything. She shot an air ball. And your reaction is like the reaction of Jenna and her teammates and her coach, her fans, her parents. Shock. She didn't even hit the rim. She shot an air ball. Jenna gained composure for her second shot. Another miss. Rebound LSU and a quick foul sent them to the line. And while LSU was walking down to the other end of the court, the TV cameras panned the bench. And there sat Jenna, the reality sinking in, her head in her hands, tears streaming down her face. The disappointment. There's a heavy, sick feeling. And there next to her, and you can see in this picture, with her arm around her neck was Coach Roberts. Resolved. Drawn to love this athlete when they were both hurting. And I need to tell you that not all coaches would make this move. This is a heartbreaking moment. You start in October, it's March, and it's over. I worried for Jenna. The press conferences, social media, her teammates. What does that kind of pressure do to a young athlete? Well, Kevin Reynolds for the Salt Lake Tribune would later write that Jenna was inconsolable after the game in the locker room. She turned off her social media and stayed with her parents that night. And the next morning, she scrolled her Twitter feed. A couple encouraging comments, but most of them were ugly. And then she saw a quote from Coach Roberts. Lynn said, I would take Jenna on the free throw line with the game on the line again tomorrow. I love that kid. She's a fighter. And later on, as the team got on the plane to fly home, Jenna told Coach Roberts, Coach, I'm glad it happened to me and not someone else. This summer, Jenna spoke to a gathering of a fellowship of Christian athletes 
And she said, my faith helped me in times like that. Listen to what this young college woman says. I know where my worth is and where my identity is. God loves me the same whether I made those free throws or I hadn't. And that's something I will remember. You see, Jenna's personal formation wasn't about clutch free throw shooting. It was about recognizing the strength of Jesus Christ, forming her from the inside. Jesus is doing that with us. He is forming us from the inside out. He's developing our character. He's strengthening us. He's fortifying us for what life throws our way. And the more we cultivate our relationship with him, the stronger it becomes. When we participate in our relationship with Jesus, we see him at work in situations that we know we can't handle. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. In Jenna's story, I'm struck that in the midst of disappointing herself, her team, and her community, we see the strength of Jesus Christ. His power was made perfect in her weakness. In the disappointment and loss, we see the love of Jesus move a coach toward loving and protecting an athlete rather than toward anger and abandonment. The profound lesson for me in the prayer of Paul's is a realization that as one who believes in Jesus, I am anchored in the most secure place possible. I am anchored in the love that conquered death. The love that carefully created the universe. The love that knows me so well that each of these hairs has a name or a number. This is a secure, amazing love. This love, this anchor is Jesus Christ. And he not only gives me a foundation on which to stand, he fills my life with love. He increases my capacity to love others. His love strengthens me to endure disappointment or missed free throws. His love shows up. It shows up first. It runs ahead of my wandering. It outdistances my imagination. When Paul prays that we might know the height and breadth of God's love for us, I think he had difficult situations in mind. He knew that life would get hard. He knew that the church would undergo great stress and persecution. Let's hold on to this encouragement. May the love of Jesus cause us to root, to plant, and to stay together as a church. May we hold fast and cling to that love that he has for us. Let's pray. Jesus, you beat us to it. You are there ahead of us waiting with outstretched and open arms. May we respond to your love by turning toward you, by getting to know you in the still places and through your word.
God, would you plant your truth in our hearts and encourage us to practice your way. We pray in your holy name. Amen.